Section 18 of the Watergate Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 1. 2. Other Intelligence Gathering and Disruption. Although the activities of Segretti and his associates were the most widespread of the White House and CRP-sponsored covert campaign activities, there were other significant inappropriate activities during the 1972 campaign. They are summarized below. Ruby won. As noted elsewhere in this report, Senator Muskie was considered the leading Democratic contender and a potentially significant threat to President Nixon's re-election until his setbacks in the spring 1972 primaries. Trying to obtain information on his campaign activities was a high priority of those planning the re-election campaign. An early example of a covert operation aimed at Muskie was the Ruby One Project, which involved planting someone in the Muskie campaign. The plan was developed by Jeb Magruder with the help of Ken Reitz beginning in August 1971. Magruder asked Reitz if he could arrange to plant someone in the Muskie campaign who would be responsible for obtaining as much information concerning the campaign as possible, including intra-office memos, speeches, travel schedules, press releases, and position papers. According to Reitz, Magruder assured him that such an operation was legal. Reitz told Magruder that he would confer with a friend on establishing a workable plan. After this conversation with Magruder, Reitz contacted John Buckley, who was director of the Inspection Division at the Office of Economic Opportunity, OEO, and asked Buckley to help him place a volunteer in the Muskie headquarters who would channel information to CRP. Buckley agreed to help. In late September 1971, Buckley told Reitz that he had drawn up a plan inspired by a newspaper column telling of a free taxi ride offered to Senator Humphrey to have a cab driver offer his services to the Muskie organization. Buckley told Reitz he had already secured a cab driver for the job, and Reitz approved the plan. Buckley had selected Elmer Wyatt, an old acquaintance of his, for the job. Buckley instructed Wyatt to go to Muskie headquarters and offer his services as a volunteer. Wyatt understood that he would be paid, although he and Buckley did not talk finances at their first meeting. Reitz said that Magruder later approved payment of $1,000 per month. Wyatt went to the Muskie headquarters where he first worked as a volunteer, doing errands such as picking up dry cleaning and mailing campaign literature to other Muskie offices. Eventually, however, Wyatt was asked to deliver inter-office mail between Muskie's Senate office and his campaign headquarters. Wyatt kept Buckley informed on his progress as a Muskie volunteer, and Buckley in turn reported to Reitz that Wyatt was established as a volunteer at the Muskie headquarters. From September 1971 until April 1972, Buckley worked with Wyatt in obtaining and photographing confidential documents from the Muskie campaign during the time Buckley was working at OEO. In the early stages, Wyatt would call Buckley before leaving to deliver documents either to or from Muskie's Senate office. Wyatt would then pick up Buckley on a specified corner, and while riding in Wyatt's cab, Buckley would review and photograph pertinent documents. When this operation was completed, the material was delivered to the Muskie campaign headquarters or Senate office. This procedure of taking pictures in the back seat was unsatisfactory for Buckley, and so he rented office space at 1026 17th Street Northwest in Washington. Buckley also purchased new equipment which was more effective in photographic documents. Wyatt obtained press releases, itineraries, internal memoranda, 
drafts of speeches and position papers, and brought them regularly to Buckley's rented office to be photographed by Buckley during his lunch hour. Buckley testified that no mail was ever opened. After developing the film, Buckley turned it over to Reitz during meetings on various corners of Pennsylvania Avenue. Reitz, in turn, gave the film to Magruder. In November 1971, Magruder gave Herbert Porter some developed 35mm film and a viewer and asked him to review the film without offering any explanation of its origin. Porter stated that Magruder occasionally asked him for the film and viewer to show them to Mitchell. Porter recalled that later Reitz brought the film directly to Porter at Magruder's instructions. Porter's job was to review the film and bring anything of interest to Magruder's attention. On occasion, Martha Duncan, Porter's secretary, typed transcripts based upon the photographed documents for forwarding to Magruder. At Magruder's request, Porter testified he also sent copies of the transcripts to Strachan. In December 1971, Porter sent a transcript of one of the film's documents from Muskie headquarters to Magruder. It was a staff memorandum from Muskie's campaign manager suggesting that Muskie, as chairman of a subcommittee on government operations, could get good coverage if he held tax hearings of his committee in California. Magruder asked Porter to have the transcript retyped on plain bond stationery and sent to Evans and Novak. Porter did so. Evans and Novak printed it, and the hearings were never held. On another occasion, Porter told Magruder he had a 20-page speech that Muskie was planning to deliver against the nomination of William Rehnquist to the Supreme Court. According to Porter, Magruder told him to have a transcript typed from the filmed document because Mitchell wanted to see it. The floor plan of Muskie's headquarters was also obtained through this political intelligence operation. In December 1971, Gordon Liddy began working at the committee to re-elect the president, and so Magruder instructed Porter to give the film and viewer to Liddy. At about the same time, Howard Hunt took over Reese's job of obtaining the film from Buckley. At Liddy's request, Hunt met Buckley on various corners of Pennsylvania Avenue as Reitz had done previously. During these brief meetings, Hunt used the alias Ed Warren, and Buckley used the alias Jack Kent. Throughout their association, Hunt never knew Buckley's real name. Although Hunt was then employed by the Robert R. Mullen Company, he was also working closely with Gordon Liddy, who was responsible for the political intelligence gathering capabilities at CRP. The codename Ruby One evolved as part of the overall gemstone plan, and was used primarily by Liddy and Hunt when referring to Wyatt. They also referred to John Buckley, alias Jack Kent, as Fat Jack. Hunt met with Buckley approximately 12 to 15 times. Buckley turned over film to Hunt, who then gave it over to Liddy. Hunt also gave Buckley plain envelopes containing cash on occasion to cover Buckley's expenses. This procedure continued until April 1972, when it was decided that Muskie was no longer a viable candidate and the operation was terminated. The Ruby One operation, as Hunt and Liddy referred to it, lasted approximately eight months and cost about $8,000. Buckley testified that he and Wyatt did not participate in any other political intelligence operations for CRP. B. Sedan Chair One the genesis of Sedan Chair, according to Bart Porter, was Jeb Magruder's concern with the favorable publicity the Democrats received during past campaigns from the humor generated by Democratic prankster Dick Tuck 
and those like him who were making Republicans the objects of their pranks. In an effort to get similar headlines, McRuder instructed Porter to obtain advanced schedules for leading Democratic contenders as part of a plan to carry out disruptive activities. The first operation arranged by Porter involved a musky visit to Chicago. An unidentified associate of Porter's organized a crowd carrying Nixon signs to meet Muskie at the Chicago airport, a move that generated some news in the local papers. Similar events took place in Cincinnati and Columbus, Ohio, and in cities in New Jersey. According to Porter, the efforts were unsuccessful, eliciting in the media little favorable Republican publicity. Occasionally, Porter paid his field operatives small amounts of money, which he received from Hank Buchanan, the accountant at CRP. In the early stages, he stated that he never distributed more than $100 or $200 to any individual. In conjunction with these efforts, Porter went to Ron Walker, then the president's chief advance man, and asked Walker if he had any associates who might be proficient at dirty tricks. Walker recommended Roger Greaves, a friend of his, and shortly thereafter, Greaves, Porter, and Magruder met in California. Following the meeting, Greaves was retained and given the code name Sedan Chair, a reference to an old Marine Corps operation that Porter remembered. It was Porter's understanding that Magruder wanted someone to follow or precede Democratic candidates and cause general harassment. For example, Porter said that Magruder envisioned an individual who would rob motorcades of automobile keys, schedule fake meetings, or steal shoes of the opposition workers that were left in hotel halls to be polished. Greaves was told that he would be reimbursed for expenses and that Porter would be the CRP contact. He was told that if successful in early forays, he would be hired on a long-term basis. Greaves' recollection of the meeting with Porter and Magruder is that Magruder wanted someone to filter stories to the media, to gather information from the opposition, and to cause harassment. Magruder, according to Greaves, stressed the need for performing his tasks covertly. Greaves said he was told by Porter that he should terminate the job he then had and that cover employment would be arranged with a large corporation, which would pay Greaves' salary for work performed at Porter's direction. According to Porter, Greaves at first expressed reservations about taking the job, but agreed with Magruder's suggestion that he perform some pranks in California on a trial basis. On November 17, 1971, confidential memo from Porter to Magruder concerning the operation reads as follows. Things went well in Los Angeles with our friend. I would like the green light to proceed with the second part of the plan. This will involve finding him a suitable home. He is ready, willing, and most able. Any ideas? Porter stated that the suitable home, referred to above, was finding a corporation to pay Greaves' salary while he covertly worked for CRP. In addition, the date of the memo above indicates that it was written after some of Greaves' early successful activities described below. Shortly after the meeting in California, Greaves received a call from Porter who relayed Muskie's schedule and instructed Greaves to arrange for pickets at a Muskie appearance. Blacks and hippies were preferred as pickets by Porter according to Greaves. Porter asked Greaves to place Nixon signs at the airport arrival of Senator Muskie and to place anti-Muskie signs at a dinner at which the candidate was scheduled to speak. On another occasion, Porter said that Magruder told him to have Greaves place some signs at the Muskie rally at Whittier College and perhaps get media coverage. 
This rally was the same occasion when Chapin instructed Segretti to arrange for pickets. According to Porter, money was sent to Greaves on three occasions. On the first occasion, Greaves claimed he needed $300 immediately for pickets who were to appear at the Muskie appearance at Whittier College. The second instance occurred when earlier Magruder or Ken Kachigian asked Porter to send Greaves 25 copies of the anti-Muskie pamphlet, ostensibly put out by the citizens for a liberal alternative. A Muskie fundraising dinner was planned in Beverly Hills, and Kachigian or Magruder thought it would be humorous to place a copy of the pamphlet in each of the menus, according to Porter. However, because the dinner never occurred, Senator Muskie was apparently ill, this stunt was sidetracked. The third time Porter forwarded money to Greaves was in January 1972, when Greaves finally decided to join the re-election campaign as a political prankster. Porter testified that Magruder told him he needed someone to work full-time on political pranks in January 1972. It was Porter's impression that Magruder was under pressure to make immediate arrangements for someone to go on to New Hampshire and then to Florida to perform pranks and familiarize himself with the Muskie campaign. Porter contacted Greaves and instructed him to use his imagination in performing political pranks that would get good coverage in New Hampshire. A salary of $2,000 per month was agreed upon. Before Greaves commenced his activities, he had his picture taken by Porter. This was done at the request of Gordon Liddy, who explained to Porter that some of his underlings would be doing some rough work in New Hampshire, and he wanted to avoid injuring Greaves. By all accounts, Greaves' performance in New Hampshire was a dismal failure. Greaves often did nothing more than visit bars and listen to conversations about the Muskie campaign. Porter has testified that Greaves said he arranged calls to voters in the middle of the night with the caller falsely stating that they were Harlemites for Muskie, requesting the voters' support for Muskie. In his interview with the select committee staff, Greaves flatly denied any involvement in this episode. Greaves spent some time in New Hampshire and then went to Florida, where he again was supposed to organize activities disruptive to Muskie's campaign. Greaves stayed in Florida only a few days before returning to California. The next time Porter heard from Greaves was when Greaves called and said he had returned to California and was resigning for personal reasons. C. Sedan Chair 2 Following Greaves' departure, Magruder told Porter he needed another operative in the field to gather information about various Democratic candidates. Magruder said he was directed to place another individual in the opposition campaign by John Mitchell. Magruder stated that this person was to provide information only and was not to engage in any disruptive activities. Porter instructed Roger Stone, a young scheduler in his office, to make arrangements for someone who would work in two or three of the primary campaigns as kind of in eyes and ears. Roger Stone's recollection of the original Sedan Chair 2 discussions conflicts with the testimony of Magruder and Porter. Stone recalled discussing the need with Porter for an individual who would perform political pranks as well as gather useful information concerning opposition campaigns. Stone said he discussed the need for a clever fieldman with Morton Blackwell, who recommended Michael W. McMinoway of Louisville, Kentucky. After introductory telephone conversations with McMinoway, Stone flew to Louisville, and using the assumed name of Jason Rayner, Stone explained to McMinoway that he was being recruited to work in the presidential primary states and track and infiltrate the Democratic organizations. 
The two agreed that McMinoway would receive $1,500 a month for his services, and that after Rayner designated which Democratic organizations were to be infiltrated, the actual operation procedures would be left up to McMinoway. At this first meeting and throughout McMinoway's tenor, efforts were made to conceal CRP's involvement in the undertaking. Stone told McMinoway only that he was working for a group of concerned citizens that were interested in the outcome of the 1972 presidential election. McMinoway was supplied with a post office box in Washington to which he was to send information, thereby avoiding any contact with CRP or its officials. McMinoway was subsequently given instructions by Stone, who said he received them from Porter, who said he obtained them from Magruder. Magruder received most of his instructions from John Mitchell. In his testimony before the Select Committee, McMinoway described how he infiltrated a Democratic candidate's campaign. The usual procedure was to start off as a volunteer worker in the particular organization from which I wished to gather information. Hard work and seemingly helpful efforts on behalf of a particular candidate advanced McMinoway in the organizations. My objective, McMinoway testified, was to work within an organization to gain their confidence, and to therefore be able to be in a position where I could personally observe and find out the information that I felt important to the organization and its structure. Occasionally, McMinoway worked simultaneously for two or three Democratic candidates. After obtaining relevant information from the campaign organizations, McMinoway called Stone or transmitted the materials to Stone via the Washington Post Office box. Stone, in turn, passed the information he received on to Bart Porter. Porter gave the information to Magruder and Bob Reisner, his assistant, in the form of memos typed on blank paper, beginning, The Confidential Source Reports. Magruder said that he sent this information on to John Mitchell and to Gordon Strachan for H.R. Haldeman. Finally, Strachan testified that he included information from Sedan Chair 2 in his Political Matters Memoranda for H.R. Haldeman. He specifically recalled including the report on the Pennsylvania Humphrey campaign discussed below. In addition to this information-gathering function, McMinoway occasionally engaged in disruptive activities which affected particular Democratic campaigns. McMinoway's first assignment from Stone and the chain of command above him was to go to Washington in March 1972 and infiltrate the Muskie headquarters. Stone instructed McMinoway to obtain information about Muskie staff members campaign finances, schedules of events, and any other useful information. McMinoway's diary corroborated his success in gathering information in Wisconsin. Other activities of McMinoway in Wisconsin were intended to disrupt Democratic candidates. On March 28, 1972, instead of supervising the distribution of Muskie literature, his diary shows that McMinoway talked his group of workers into drinking beer. On March 30th, he visited the Humphrey headquarters and gave them a schedule of events of the Muskie campaign. On March 25th, while still ostensibly a Muskie worker, McMinoway visited McGovern's headquarters and talked to a worker there about possible disruptions of a Muskie television interview. Finally, on March 31st, the diary shows that he went down to headquarters and diverted some Election Day precinct materials. Following the Wisconsin primary, Stone, acting on orders from Porter, told McMinoway to infiltrate the Pennsylvania Humphrey campaign. Using an alias, McMinoway presented himself as a volunteer and was welcomed to the campaign. He routinely began sending relevant information about the campaign to Washington, 
The Humphrey campaign also asked McMinoway to help supervise their phone bank operations. In this capacity, he promptly put people on the night shift on calling and duplicating cards that had been done by the day shift. In addition, he rearranged names to be called so that the night shift would make the small calls as the day shift. The impact of this action was noted in his diary. Repetition of calls is starting to aggravate the volunteer block captains. The captains are getting called two or three times and it is beginning to bother them. Some captains have already quit because of the repeated calls. At one point, McMinoway wrote in his diary that he hired people of low-caliber qualifications to work the phone banks. On another occasion, he rearranged stacks of names to be called so that prepared messages to be read by the caller were directed to the wrong group. Calls for black voters were substituted for calls to union members and vice versa. On still another occasion, McMinoway falsely told volunteers who were scheduled to work the phone banks that they would not be needed that particular day. McMinoway testified that his phone bank activities caused considerable disruption to the Humphrey campaign because, as he wrote in his diary, Humphrey is spending one-third of his budget on the phone bank and literature packets that the block captains will distribute. As in Wisconsin, McMinoway's loyalties were not confined to the Democratic candidate he had volunteered to assist. In an April 22, 1972 entry in his diary, he shows he called people from the Humphrey headquarters and urged them to vote for Senator Jackson. McMinoway testified that he impressed the Humphrey people with his willingness to work. Toward the end of the Pennsylvania campaign, McMinoway testified that a national coordinator asked him to work at the Humphrey Los Angeles headquarters in the California primary. In his diary, McMinoway quoted from an alleged letter that the national coordinator prepared to introduce him in California. The letter said McMinoway was an avid Humphrey supporter that could be trusted in any project. McMinoway was then assigned by Stone and his superiors to go to California and infiltrate both the McGovern and Humphrey campaigns. This assignment came after the mid-April 1972 meeting when Gordon Strachan testified that H.R. Haldeman told him to tell G. Gordon Liddy to transfer whatever possible capability he had from Muskie to McGovern. McMinoway testified that he engaged in the same activities in California as he had in prior primaries, and that he reported by telephone to Stone daily. McMinoway testified that he learned of the Watergate break-in after the California primary, while awaiting his next assignment. McMinoway said he immediately called Stone, only to learn that his number had been disconnected that same morning. About two days later, McMinoway said that Stone called him and asked that he continue his activities, explaining that Stone had taken no part in any illegal actions. McMinoway said he remained unconvinced, but that he agreed to go to Washington to meet with Stone's supervisor to receive reassurance of the propriety of his undertaking. In Washington, McMinoway testified he received a phone call in his hotel room. The man identified himself merely as Mr. M., just for the matter of having something a reference for me to contact and he reassured me that the organization I was working with was not involved in illegal activities and quite strenuously passed on to me the fact that they were not, in fact, connected with the people that were apprehended. This mysterious caller was Bart Porter, who stated that he had discussions with McMinoway after the June 17 break-in. Porter had no recollection of any discussion about the break-in, recalling that the conversation focused on a possible increase in salary for sedan chair too. McMinoway testified that after this convention, he volunteered for work at McGovern's national headquarters in Washington, 
where he worked closely with McGovern's administrative staff. As he explained, by this time I had become a familiar face. At the Democratic National Convention, McMinoway claimed to achieve new successes in his efforts to infiltrate the opposition. The first five days there, he said, were used to amass information on where different delegations were staying, where different hotels were, the locations, and so forth. Thereafter, McMinoway served as a member of the security staff in McGovern's headquarters at the Doral Hotel, a position which, he testified, occasionally allowed him access to otherwise private areas. As he explained in his diary, McMinoway said he was a guard on the penthouse floor where McGovern was staying. McMinoway also wrote in his diary that he had access to all of McGovern's convention operation rooms, and that he met all of the big-time McGovern staff. McMinoway wrote that he watched television with Senator McGovern on the night of the vote on the challenge to the California delegation, and added, It is amazing how easy it would be to be right in the midst of all the operations and planning and yet be an enemy. Many of McMinoway's particular claims about his work at the Democratic conventions are contradicted by sworn affidavits and testimony in the public committee record. However, there is no question that McMinoway was able to secure a position as a volunteer security guard of the McGovern floors while working directly for the committee to re-elect the president. D. Ruby II In February 1972, Howard Hunt hired Thomas Gregory, a student at Brigham Young University, to infiltrate the Muskie campaign. Hunt met Gregory through Robert Fletcher, the nephew of Robert Bennett, Hunt's employer at the Mullen Company. Using the alias Ed Warren, Hunt called Gregory in Utah and asked him to come to Washington for an expense-paid job interview. About a week later, Hunt and Gregory met at the Park Central Hotel in Washington, where Hunt explained that he wanted information from the Muskie campaign, including schedules, internal memorandums, and general observations of the campaign. Gregory was to work as a volunteer for Muskie, report to Hunt once a week, and receive $175 a week for his services. Gregory accepted the offer. The next day, Gregory began working as a volunteer at the Muskie campaign headquarters, where he was placed in the foreign affairs section under Anthony Lake. His job consisted of photocopying, picking up schedules, and other random chores. Gregory did not photocopy any material for Hunt, but he did type reports based upon documents he read or conversations he overheard. Hunt and Gregory met weekly in a drugstore at 17th and K Streets Northwest in Washington, D.C. During these brief meetings, Gregory gave Hunt typed reports on the week's activities. When Hunt was not available, Gregory gave this material to Robert Fletcher to pass on to Hunt. All information that Hunt received from Gregory was turned over to Gordon Liddy, including the memorandums that Hunt typed which summarized Gregory's oral reports. Hunt did not retain any copies of this material. Gordon Strachan testified that in mid-April 1972, Haldeman told him to contact G. Gordon Liddy to tell him to transfer his capability from Muskie to McGovern with particular interest in discovering what the connection between McGovern and Senator Kennedy was. Strachan also testified that he assumed, finally, there was going to be one unified system of intelligence gathering under Liddy after this conversation. At about this same time, Hunt asked Gregory to transfer to the McGovern campaign as a volunteer, which he did. Gregory's responsibilities remained the same as in the Muskie campaign, with one significant addition. He was now to prepare and assist Hunt and Liddy in their plans to place electronic surveillance on McGovern headquarters. 
Gregory gave Hunt a floor plan and office description of the McGovern headquarters at Hunt's request. Hunt then introduced Gregory to James McCord in late April or early May 1972. In a meeting at the Roger Smith Hotel, Washington, D.C., Hunt and McCord told Gregory they were planning to place a bug in the McGovern headquarters and would need assistance. In late May 1972, Gregory took McCord through the McGovern headquarters to familiarize McCord with the physical layout. On a second occasion, May 27, 1972, Gregory again took McCord through the McGovern headquarters. On that visit, McCord unsuccessfully attempted to plant a bug in Frank Mankiewicz's office. Sometime in late May or early June 1972, Gregory met Gordon Liddy for the first time during an automobile ride in which Hunt drove Liddy and Gregory around the McGovern headquarters while Liddy told Gregory that he, too, was interested in getting into the McGovern offices. Hunt, Liddy, McCord, and Gregory met at a Washington hotel to discuss breaking into McGovern headquarters to copy documents and to go over a physical layout of offices and the location of alarm systems. By early June, Gregory had serious questions about the propriety of his activities, which he discussed with his uncle, Robert Bennett. On or about June 15th or 16th, 1972, Gregory met with Hunt to tell him that he no longer wished to continue with his work. After terminating his employment with Hunt, Gregory also contacted the McGovern headquarters to discontinue his volunteer work. Gregory received approximately $3,400 for his services. End of section 18.